Verse 10 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that in whatever state I am in, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that also in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word before us, and thank you for the promise to help us through the variety of circumstances that we might be finding ourselves in now. And we look to you here now to speak to us individually and use your word to penetrate our own hearts individually and show us the way that we should live. Lord, bless the reading and studying of your word so that we may live the way that we're called. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm here today to tell you a secret. Who likes secrets? One. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> I looked down too fast. I saw the others. If I asked each of you your own impression of that comment, you'd probably have very different opinions of, of how, how that affected you. But I doubt your first reaction, well, I know your first reaction was not to giggle as my young daughters were when I asked them the same question. For them, once the enthusiasm wore off, the question started. What well, did you tell my sister one? Was hers better? Did you tell me a real secret or was it a fake secret? True story. Are you exhausted yet? <laughs> that continued for a few minutes. So anyone that's now not yet convinced, contentment is clearly learned. We're not born with it. This is not something that's in us to the start. If anyone disagrees, well, we'll talk later. So think to yourselves, when was the last time someone told you a secret or threatened to tell you a secret? And I'm not talking about boasting or, or, or gossiping, but what struck you first? Was it curiosity? Were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you thinking, oh my, what, what, what is this information that I'm going to learn? If you're honest, you just want to know what it is. You just want to get it out of them. And that's kind of where we see Paul here. So then how would you respond when someone says that they not only have a secret, but they have the answer to the one particular desire that's been consuming you? It could be to obtain wealth, it could be to fix your health situation, or just create an easier life for your family. Because I think we have an innate yearning for the easy road. You know, who doesn't want to just have things laid out well for them in the, in the future? Occasionally, a secret becomes an obsession that has absolutely no relevance to our actual calling. But it gives us an odd sense of power, doesn't it? It's, it's that information that's out off to the side to think, well, if all else fails, I have this thing that I can go to. Because, look, we're intrigued by any prepackaged process that can pull off the shelf and plug and play, like six, turn, uh, six tips to earning a promotion or three steps to better abs. I'm open to both, but, you know, that's not what we're talking about today. But, but think about that. That's what we hear in our society. The truth is, sorry, you might not get what you want. 
and you might really not get it your way. This is not Burger King. You know, this is, this is something that, that life is not a cookie-cutter situation for us. I heard re- someone recently say, contentment is a type of undervalued grace. It can't be found in, an un- in a few easy steps. So our challenge, I think, is not just that we're in a society that perpetually is discontent, but our own hearts are occasionally discontented at times inside the church, just as well as outside. And look, I, I do not stand here as an expert by any means, but as someone walking through this process with you. Truth be told, I wish I was sitting down next to you, talking to the wall, because I'm on this side of the fence. But as, you know, if I'm honest, as I read through this, I felt a little condemned and maybe a little embarrassed myself, because I think, well, well wow, we're in this society where, where the, the complete message is the world can fix you. The world can't fix you. We've all tried that one way or another, right? And I think it was until that point that I realized that contentment comes by letting God in when everything is going wrong, but also when things are going right. Let God in when you're needy, and let God in when you're successful. It's both sides to that story. That's going to be a common theme today. Contentment is a strength issue, but it has nothing to do with your strength or my strength. The only reason I'm up here is not because of my strength, or I'd be sitting over there. Right? So it, it has to do with letting God deal with you on both extremes, on both sides of the coin. And I don't know your circumstances today, nor will I ask right now whether you're anxious or at peace. But what I do hope is that you sense the joy in Paul's words, because it's the root of his absolute confidence in God as we, so, as we go through these verses today. So let's get to the Philippians themselves. Paul spent nearly nearly 20 years spreading the gospel and starting churches throughout the Roman world. Why? Well, they owned it all. They had a bit of a monopoly at the time. So Paul made the case that it's right to compensate those who serve and teach in the church. And this is not the premise of the message today, but this is a segue into why he's talking about serving and money. Occasionally, at least in the case of the Philippians, recipients of the ministry supported his work. It was a good thing to do. But as a general rule, Paul would not accept pay from preaching. We learn in Acts 18.3 that Paul lived and worked with them, Aquila and Priscilla, two that were mentioned, for they were tent makers just as he was. And if, if I gave you a pop quiz, he made, repaired, and sold tents. You guessed it. So for yourself, what do you do? Put that in here. You don't have to go out and make tents. I've heard that story where, oh, I have to be a tent maker and preach the gospel. Well, well, no, that's not exactly what this means. What it means is, where are you now? What is the situation you find yourself in occupationally? Or maybe you're not currently working for a paycheck. You're working for uh, your family. You're working for another cause. Roman culture at this time, when Paul was writing, was accustomed to traveling philosophers and teachers who would be paid a fee for their efforts. You know, it's no different now. You go see a speaker, a seminar, and they get paid for their, for their work. Occasionally, they were even given hospitality and benefits by wealthy followers in that day. You know, there were no credit cards. It was cash on hand. It was cash on the barrel. It was, it was payment for a service rendered. And this sometimes generated scandals that Paul chose to distance himself from. He clearly enjoyed his relationship with the wealthy, but would very well and, and very well could have sought out and received payment from them regularly. So it's not that he didn't have a source for to just milk this for all he was worth, but he didn't do that. Paul closely connects his actual work, his day to day, his wake up, his get dressed, his eat, his go to work, and, and do it all over again. You know the typical routine. He tied that in very closely to his ministry itself. To him, they were not separate entities. They were one. Paul was one person, though he had the extremes on both sides, I think just the same as we have. 
Here's three or four examples. He reminds the Thessalonians, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? They saw him work. Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we were preaching God's good news to you. Whenever there was money involved, it could also give, obviously, could give a false impression of his motives. Maybe he's working because he wants something a little extra from a certain group of people. So he said this to the Corinthians, if you support others who preach to you, as was common in that day, shouldn't we, the teachers, the, the biblical, biblical, biblical teachers, have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather give up, or we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Continuing same chapter, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive living from the gospel. And finally, probably no better example is Jesus himself. Jesus modeled this method to his own disciples in Matthew 10. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals, or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve to be fed. Today, tent making has come to represent the state of a Christian who engages in a, in a vocation outside the church, not necessarily a full-time pastor-teacher role, which is most of us, I would say, but who believes the product or service that he produces or she produces is secondary to the effect that he has on the lives of others. It's the idea that the tent maker themselves understand that making money, receiving a wage, and becoming impactful is, is purely God-given and used to glorify God. Said another way, tent makers are different difference makers in their own community. They're focused on being an example of Christ to those around them with a desire to see their friends come to a knowledge of Christ. This is a lifestyle decision. This is not a transactional piece. So think for a second. The work you, you know, the non-church you, do you live in a way that others see that there's more to you? There's more to the story, that you live for something more. Think through that. Is that the case? Or, or, or are you two different people? Many teachers were out there trying to make a living at this new profession. They were on tour to a certain degree with whatever philosophy of the hour. You know, we change the channel and we can see one message after another after another. We can pick and choose the content that we want in this day. Believe it or not, they didn't have Comcast back then, but they had the, the variety of messages just the same as we do here. It was no different. We just have some niceties now that maybe they didn't before. So if an orator went to this side of the room, he could say a thing, and then to this side of the room, he could say another thing. Each group would feel they have the upper hand. I know better because he told me this. Well, they didn't know that he told the other side something completely different. So in reality, it's all a sham. It's old-fashioned, whisper down the lane because this side would tell their friends and this side would tell their friends and there's no standards here. Absolutely not. So Paul used these grounds to contrast the many false teachers that were out amongst him saying the same thing, speaking the same way that Paul, that would use Paul's example to enrich, enrich himself by preaching. It was not about him just making money because I'm the next best speaker. No, that's not it at all. So, the truth, too, was, you know, they didn't have myth-busting search engines like we do now. You can Google anything. Most of it's wrong. Sorry to tell you that. They didn't even have a pre-printed version of the New Testament scriptures to verify like we have in front of us today. In verse 10, we'll start. We see Paul setting the standard. So enter Paul setting a standard in a world that has none, absolutely none. He says, how I praise the Lord that you were concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned about me, but you did not have the chance to help me. Another version says, Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. 
typical for him, Paul starts out with a few statements. Now, now, you know, obviously in chapter 4, we're ending the letter at this point, but he's focusing on the Philippians' gift in this way. So, you know, he's transitioning ideas at this point. So he shares a few statements of gratitude and friendship to receiving the gift, and that's where we transition in here. The word rejoiced, or in the other version I read, how I praise the Lord, is actually the same word used, the same phrasing used to describe the Magi in Matthew 10. Here's what they said. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's it's a significant emphasis there. This is the kind of joy and surprise you can't prepare for and you don't see coming. I think the word is serendipitous. It just comes upon you and it's the, the, the weight of, the, of the, the joy is just something you can't even comprehend. But at the time of writing, though, f- for some context, this has likely been three to four years or so since his last visit with them. So after three to four years, now Paul is wondering, did they forget about me? Where are they? He's in prison and then they came after some time. So think about it. After some time, you've heard from a long-lost friend that you grew up with. Out of the blue, there they are. Maybe not satisfying a need, but eh, not a friendship. Maybe that's a nice thing to do. It's just like that. They were friends. He knew them. He knew them intimately. He taught them. He worked with them. It's just like someone, someone here for several years, and then you go away and you come back. There's that kind of joy. Interestingly, as you may be thinking, he doesn't write, just come right out and say thank you in this passage here. Some historians say that in that culture, someone who gave financially to a person showed hospitality to and looked out for their clientele. It's basically what that was. So if Paul had come right out and said thank you directly, he may have put himself in the role of a subordinate or a dependent, which he didn't want. Instead, this was just a missionary sharing, acknowledging the well-received gift that he was given. Eleven says, not that I was ever in need. And look, do we not see ministries now, and what are they focused on? Money, fame, and greed. Historically, that's been the case. And this is a guy who is not consumed by the money. He's not worried about the money. He didn't need the Philippians. He didn't need them. He was living in the strength of God that he, that he had been given. But he would have been perfectly, ex- perfectly happy to accept any of their help as well. But what the point is, I think here, is that Paul's not acting as a one-man show, only out for himself. He's out for the greater good here. He also makes the point that he's not buttering up to them and soliciting resources for him. He's not, he's not trying to say, hey, listen, you guys were so good to me, so I'm waiting for your gift now. No, that's not what he's looking for. And I, I think, too, this, these are my words, but a missionary who begs is not necessarily one to whom Paul would be encouraging. You know, there, there's, a, there's a, a strength issue. It's not in the person. It's of God purely. So, you know, we see, we see missionaries and ministries begging and pleading. That's where I see a little bit of a struggle. Well, speaking of struggle, let's get on to the more challenging half of verse 11. The NIV, which may, some of you may have, says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So what is the secret? Paul knew what it was like to be wealthy. He was. And also to be poor. What a message, right? Stuck in between. So I wonder today, what are the circumstances that you find yourselves in? What are you struggling with right now? Are you thriving? Everyone in your family is well. Everyone's healthy. Your jobs are prosperous. Or are you fearing bad news from a doctor tomorrow morning? Concerned over a job loss, unemployed, another inconvenience that's, that's mounted up to something significant? I think you may agree here that Paul was well qualified to speak on being content. In Paul's case, he was jailed. Someone else was controlling his entire activities when he ate, when he slept, has access to his needs. 
He also had every right to complain in this situation, I think. I'm not advocating that, but I think so. <laughs> Over the course of his ministry, he was mobbed, he was beaten, he was stoned. This is just up until the point he's writing this letter. I'd say enough to make anyone quit. I might quit. The conditions that would make any of us bitter only added to his joy. That's where he had been to get to this point where he's talking about, no, no, really, I have a secret, and I know the bad things, the good things, but I'm still here with you. That's where my joy comes from. If he was just trying to reconcile his priorities between wealthy things or the low things, he'd never be able to serve Christ fully. So look, anybody who tries to serve Christ without reconciling whether or not it's, it's okay to be wealthy or not or have what we need or not, missed the point entirely. So the secret is finding the middle ground between these two extremes. This is the key to Christian living. This is the key to, to how we should live. How do some of us then live with much when some of us live with little? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. We read here in Job, you know the verse, the Lord gave me what I had, and then the Lord took it away. Praise the name of the Lord. I had it. I lost it. Well, praise the Lord anyway. British priest from the 1600s, Jeremiah Burroughs, said this, a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. A heart that has no grace and is instructed in the mystery of contentment knows of no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions so he attains contentment. As tough, of it, as, tough as it is to become and remain content, I see still this passage as being highly encouraging. I don't know how many times over the last week you felt inadequate, feeling like your actions were not up to someone else's ex expectations, including your own. Who has high expectations? Well, don't raise your hands. But whoever has high expectations, I will raise my hand. This passage gives us a roadmap toward the contentment that only living in Christ, with Christ in us and alongside us, can provide. Paul's encouragement is that the secret, well, it's not really a secret at all. It's kind of fun to say it's a secret, I guess. Because the same power, Romans 8 says, who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. The spirit's already in you, the same spirit that we saw through Christ. It's no different. So again, by Burroughs, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Even the philosophical world yearns for contentment. Socrates said, He is richest who is content with the least, for content is the wealth of nature. We're going to let that go. Contentment doesn't mean that all of our dreams will come true either. And finally, Burroughs concludes, As I am the soul to whom the Lord has re revealed the infinite excellence of Jesus Christ. So if I'm the guy who Jesus revealed himself to, and yet shall I think such a little affliction so grievous to me? If God is about to humble me to break my heart, it is to bring my heart down to him. Let me join with God in this work of his. Let's go with that, if that's what God's working on us for. Verse 12, very popular translation says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in every, in every, in any, in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You ever notice that life runs in circles, in cycles, fads come and go. We have good days, bad days, troublesome days. It's really nothing new. Ecclesiastes one says, generations come and generations go. 
But the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries up to do it all over again. More resources and, and a more apparent success does not lead to contentment in our American lives, period. Not in our professions and surely not in our faith walk. I think the most difficult hurdle for Americans is that we live with so much excess. We live with everything. Oh, and then some. And then some more, right? We have unlimited choice in how we consume content and food and advice for absolutely everything. We have access to everything at this point. And I hope we're not too short-sighted to think that we'll continue to see advancements, too. Who, who doesn't want to see advancements in healthcare to prolong our conditions? That's a good thing. But what are we lacking? If we have everything, we're still lacking something. Some of us here may have it all, but are you happily settled with the life that you have, even though you have absolutely everything? Personally, I'm in a profession that can <laughs> verify that this saying is true. More money, more problems. Ever hear that before? Some may say, I'd sure like to try. Yeah, well, here lies the dilemma, right? Here's a story from about a year ago, actually. 27-year-old rose to fame, significant fame and wealth. Probably don't know who he is. I didn't know who he was. Here's what he said, in part. I remember getting to the end of a particularly challenging but satisfying project, taking a deep breath and realizing I had it all. I had the fancy million-dollar house I could have paid off at any time I wanted. I had the luxury cars that I purchased with cash. I was highly respected where I worked. I had the freedom to work on whatever I chose. I had a very high salary, lucrative stock options, and money, more money than I knew what to do with. But I felt anxious and dissatisfied. On some level, my striving for success had been driven by a belief that my deep suffering would go away if I had enough wealth. I learned firsthand that our, once our basic needs are taken care of, the level of contentment and happiness we experience has nothing to do with the wealth that we have. Don't know if he's a believer. Wealth and resources, though, are God-given and allowed and expected in some degree, some cases. It's not for us to be critical, though, of those who have more than us or who have less than us. The idea here is that well, are you content with your circumstances? Can you live with your lot in life? Or are you continually dissatisfied with everything? Because, look, you can go out of here, you can look around the room. Don't. But there are people that have more and have less. You can go to the parking lot. People have more and they have less. That's okay. Look, is your porridge too hot, too cold, or just right? I don't know. Is your car too fast? Probably not. Too slow or just right? <laughs> what is it? What is it that you have that you focus on, that you compare on a daily basis? Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And it's not just stuff, I don't think. Not in this case. Our discontentment with, with relationships, with churches, yes, churches, homes, and with our possessions shouldn't shock us. Because, remember, we started out. Contentment is not something that comes naturally. Contentment is learned by everyone, by all people. No one's immune to this process that we have to walk through. When we fail to realize this secret, the secret is it's learned. We miss out on God's blessings. It's that undervalued grace that I mentioned earlier that we completely miss. It's undervalued because we look right over it. We're looking at the next best thing or somebody that has something less than us. By contrast, think about it this way. Contented people are striking. If you see someone who's content, you think, well, that's different. That's new. I kind of like that. They're not on the hamster wheel, darting to the next shiny thing that passes. They're not all that distracted by life's troubles. 
They're not apt to give or take offense. Think of it. Are you someone who gets offended easily? Does the littlest thing make you stumble? What good does that do? Does that add any, any minute to our lives? Does that, does that Im- impact us in a positive way? Contented people aren't focusing on striving for more and better. They diligently travel along the path that God has set out for them individually, and they take what comes. It's the joy in the Lord that cures arguments and misunderstandings, not just on your opponent's side, on your side too. Verse 13. We see this passage, I would dare say, primarily out of context. We see it on coffee mugs, on the back of boxers' robes, on football cleats this season, variety of other athletic and heroic uses, patriotic in in some cases, but I believe there's a deeper meaning here. Here's what verse 13 says. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The sole idea that we alone can do anything we put our minds to with the afterthought of Christ helping us is absolutely not what Paul is saying here. There was also absolutely zero boasting when he said this. This wasn't a Nabon and Claim scheme where Paul could have commanded his position of change Really, if he could, would he have remained 800 miles away in Rome, away from the people that he loved, chained to a guard? I think not. Paul also wouldn't have tagged his his business slogan of his tent-making business as this. You know, he, he, he wasn't boasting in the message that he can do everything in and of himself. The idea specifically is, with Christ in you, yeah, yeah, you, you have inside you the ability to handle what comes your way. This promise gives us the strength to handle the things and the results of life's failures. Remember, I'll say this again, and again probably, contentment is learned and clearly independent of our own circumstances and feelings. How many times do you hear from a friend or or from a relative or from your mouth, well, I feel that a situation is this way or it should be that way, or no, that's not how this works. It's not about feelings. You know in 1 Corinthians 10.13, maybe the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You're not immune. You're not different. You're not special in, in the way that these afflictions will come to you. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, then he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 4 says, Because the God who said... Out of darkness, light shall shine, is the one who shined in our hearts to illuminate the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here, but we have this treasure, God working in us, in earthen vessels. That's us. So if I read it backwards, we have God working in us, in these bodies that we have, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not be of us. It's almost that we we turn ourselves inside out because God's illuminating our hearts. He's living inside of us. He wants what's inside of us to come out. Not in a strange way, but in a a way that's, that's evident to the world that watches us. He goes right into verse 14 now. You have done well that you shared in my distress. Or as the message paraphrase, paraphrases, I don't mean that you didn't, your help wasn't, didn't mean a lot to me. It did. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. Paul is delivering what we know as the Bible. It's a canonized version of Scripture. This is, this is, it, they were living this out. And actually, if you think about it, what was he doing? Paul was setting the standard to a world that had no standard. He was setting the standard on their very actions. It's like Paul saying, no, you shouldn't have. But since you did, it actually makes my suffering all the more valuable. It's him writing through the letter, pleading to God over here, writing the letter to the Philippians, pleading to God, 
please give them an A for effort in the column of their eternal reward. They deserve it. They need it. And they did not ask for it. Paul encourages them to share in the rewards for his own work that would be credited to their unseen accounts, including the multitudes that heard and trusted Christ through the ministry, and that includes us today, because what are we reading? We're reading the words that he wrote to them, and we're learning from their actions. So how much do we strive to build relational investments in this world? Are they based on our positions, our status, or are they introducing Christ to a world that has no standards? Or are we using our relationship capacity to share the love of Christ with them? Paul illustrates that their help allows him to minister to people, resulting in their blessing. We're, we're missing out on something that is available to all. This, this situation that we, find or, that we find Paul in here is the language of a partnership. The New Living Translation says, You have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. The word share has the meaning of partner. And this is a, it has a negative connotation in this verse, but Revelation, well, not to us, but Revelation 1.9 says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. So the language is, you have done well that you shared in my distress. They're sharing, and he's not on a mountaintop. He's not having a good experience here. They've shared in his lowest point. And that is where they're basically starting to show his evidence to a deeply woven commitment that they have to each other. That's a great partnership. It's a great example of how we should live with the missionaries and the pastors and leaders in our lives. So we should, we should be so connected with them that we're with them in good times and bad times. 15 says, You Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news, then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Uh, Macedonia was a, was a province, a state, you might say, in Philippi, where Philippi was situated. Present day, it's, it's mostly eastern Greece, if you look at a map. It's also been said that it's, it was Luke's hometown. You know, Dr. Luke, the, the gospel writer, where he practices uh, medicine in that day. Paul continues here describing this two-way partnership that he had with them. And it wasn't a one-way situation. It wasn't where the Philippians were expecting, well, Paul is just going to teach me. It's only from him to us. It's from God to him to us. No, it wasn't at all. The partnership, the whole emphasis of this message is it was from the seats to the front and the front to the seats. It was back and forth, back and forth at all times. The church reciprocated back to the apostle, whichever direction we want to go, in being partners with this ministry, they're partners with God who sent him. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're teaming up with the, the right guy or not. You're teaming up with the God who's speaking through the guy to the rest of us. Paul speaks, at least spoke a little bit, of the early days of ministry. They were just as faithful then. It wasn't a lifestyle. It was, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't a transactional one-time gift. It wasn't analogous to dropping a few dollars in the bucket. It was a pre-thought-out, dedicated action that they did. This wasn't a spontaneous one day, hey, let's write a check to Paul. No, it's not how this worked. There was, there was absolute dedication here. The Philippians were deeply committed to Paul's ministry. Out of all the churches especially, they were the only ones who shared with him at this time. You ever, ever have a need and something comes in from one source? And you think, oh, that was good. <laughs> you, might, you, might have, you might have wanted it to come in from multiple sources, but it didn't. It came from one. And what did you need? One. One source. Paul continues in verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Then in 17. Not that I, speak, not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Most business transactions then involved crops. 
So it was na natural to a certain degree that the usage of seek the fruit was used. It was a natural reference to them. They understood what that meant. So it was expected for them. And there's also an expectation here because he uses the word since. Since you're giving. Since you're already giving. You're already down the road. I'm already anticipating the Lord and what he will do for you because of how you gave. We know this gift was financial, but we don't know exactly what it was, right? We don't know that it was so many units of this or so many dollars or, or, or really, does it matter? Does it really matter what that gift was? I kind of appreciate the vagueness here because each of us have different accounts to pull from. We don't all have the same account. We don't have the lofty account or the low account. None of us are here that are, that are the same. Some have time to give. Some have talents to lend. Others have treasure or financial gifts. That's all okay. This one was financial. That was the need at the time. And I'm glad there isn't a prescription of giving what we're held to. That would be impractical. You know, for, for Paul to say, okay, everyone has to do things this way. No, that's, that's not the case. What, what is the case, though, is that God was leading the Philippians to give to a particular need. Yeah, there's options here, but that was what was needed at the time. Acknowledging their gift, the New Living Translation says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. I don't. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. I just want the reward. I want what's coming to you that you've never seen before. I don't want the money. I don't, want the, I don't have the desire for the funds themselves. Paul draws on imagery from the financial world. You only get into an account what you actually put in. How many times do you think, oh, I'll just retire in a way that, that's like this, or I'll have enough money for that, but you haven't done anything about it. You haven't started anything. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The Philippians had a goal. They were investing toward it. And now he's not looking forward to the next gift. He's looking for the rewards because of the mentality that they used to do that, to make that gift. The Philippians are making eternal deposits for a world they are not yet in and they have never seen. Of all that he used to value, I said before, he was from a wealthy situation. He had great family background, educational pedigree and success. Paul's goal is to place value on his friends at this point, on those relationships that he has. Earlier, about a chapter before in Philippians 3.7, says this, I once thought these things were valuable, the background, the, the wealth, things like that, but now I consider them absolutely worthless because of what Christ has done in me. And in 18, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me from Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. We talked about this. Paul was in prison at the time and only received what the prison had supplied. We learned that he was given this financial gift, likely for his needs, of course, because we didn't really talk through that in the ministry. But at times, when money was given to a missionary like that, it was also used for needy Christians in the variety of churches that he ministered to. Now, where else would the money come from? the missionary would have. From tent making, that was to cover his needs. But some of these gifts were actually given out to the, to the poor that was in the community. A popular paraphrase here says, you can be sure that God will take care of everything you need, his generosity exceeding, even yours in glory, that pours out from Jesus. Our God and Father abounds in glory that just pours out into eternity.
Next, the relationship here turns practical as we see Paul's genuine appreciation for their kindness toward him. Paul sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this note. So they've received the gift. He's writing about it. He's talking through the situation of how he just so much wants their, their, their award for this or reward for this. And now the note's going back to them. Epaphroditus, by the way, means agreeable. Maybe you know someone like him. Maybe you are someone like him. Because of his character and love for the Lord, he becomes Paul's assistant. He did uh, assistant, assistantly things. He would help with communications and writing and communicating, things like that. In scripture, he was called a brother, a co-worker, and fellowish soldier. He serves a position not necessarily of high prestige. He's not the pastor. He's not the missionary. He's not the board member or some department head of, of a situation like that. If you yourselves hire or if you manage people, I think you want this guy. I'd want this guy. He takes his job seriously. He handled the day-to-day communication, speaking for Paul, other things as needed. He has the dedication, and and I, I, these are my words, but you might say the reckless abandon to do his job completely. Got to appreciate a guy or a girl who does something completely from start to finish. He does the last 2% of the job that most people don't do. The end of Philippians 2 actually tells us that he was at the point of death, not advocating this part. But commentators say that it was likely out of exhaustion due to the difficult travel. Look, Land Rovers didn't exist back then. If they did, no problem. But he had some pretty significant terrain to travel through and waters. And you know, if you, if you look at that, at that map, they'd have to go way up and over or take a boat. And both, both were treacherous. Poor guy. There were many Christians who were great workers, I think, for the cause of Christ. But... How many of us are known for our consistent, even-keeled partnership with those we work with in a leadership capacity? Paul deploys his agreeable friend in ministry. He sends him back out, and he has the fruit to show for his usefulness. So for yourselves, don't underestimate the value that you have when you feel that you're doing insignificant tasks for somebody else. Are you helping someone with something substantial and not receiving pay for it? That's, that's exactly what, in part, this guy was called to do. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, whatever you find yourselves to do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So don't write off the importance that you have in someone else's life when you find yourself called to do something that doesn't make any good sense at all. The world may tell you, what are you doing that for? You could be compensated for that, or you shouldn't be doing that. It's not what it is. It's about following the path that God has for each one of you individually. So we have the message. We've got the messenger. We've got the audience. Or do we? Here's an interesting piece from the book of Acts 16. I think he had a little bit of a motley crew. I always wanted to know. Okay, letter goes out. Great. Who's going to read the letter? I want to know that. We read a little bit here. Lydia. We like Lydia. She ran a business where she sold purple things. Not so bad. You know, garments, cloths, things like that. It gets interesting from here. Then he had a fortune-telling girl who worked for a series of people to make a living. She'd go tell stories and charge them money, and the guys would be rich, and, well, that was part of the church. Then a tough, horrible prison guard that would beat and torture people. Not exactly who I choose to start a church. I'm sure there's others that would look at me and say, well, why is he there? <laughs> but this, this was part of the core. I would say the core, because that's what the Bible, these are the names the Bible gives us, that started this church in Philippians. These are the people who were giving through, through their own heart to to God through Paul. So these are some of the people that chose to turn from their ways, trust Christ, and now bless Paul. Not too bad. People can change. People should change. People will change. Let's get back to verse 18. 
Paul writes as if they had forgotten him completely. So we have the context here. This wasn't obviously an email chain back and forth, back and forth, or any social media posts that you can easily follow. This was a deliberate communication that was sent. This just shows that there was a deep appreciation out of the length of time that they had known each other. In business, it's like this. There's a relationship that you have maybe with a trusted supplier. Ten years. It's been at least a decade. You come to trust them. You've come to know them. You know their personality. Or someone you mentored in ministry and business and life. A decade later, you still have that deep connection, right? Think of some of your longest lasting friends. It's, it's, it's just like that. You want the best for them even though time has passed by and didn't even feel like too much time had gone by. Because the Philippians gave, Paul can say the result of their gift was like an acceptable sacrifice well received. Paul somewhat eloquently describes his gift, his joy for the gift. And he uses this Old Testament language saying, sweet smelling, describing their action. He understood the effort and sacrifice that was made by those giving, but with the reward of Christ's blessings. 19 and 20 here, this is occasionally out of context too. But I'll say, you've heard the word benediction maybe before. This is basically Paul awarding a verbal blessing as he starts to close out this letter. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches. God owns everything to which we have given uh, to us through Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God, our Father, forever and ever. The word forever, it's the same word that Jesus used to as an example of permanency when he speaks of eternity. It's the same exact word. Matthew 12, language says forever and ever, for ages and ages and ages to come, even into an eternity and forever into eternity. This word just means infinity and beyond. Sorry if I broke any rights of someone who owns that phrase. <laughs> kind of how it works. Hey, I'm blaming Paul. He, 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 he owned it first. The church gave out of their finite wealth in exchange for God's infinite supply. Don't miss this. Let's summarize this not-so-secret secret. The secret for contentment in every situation, not just some, is to focus on the Lord. He's our Savior. He is sovereign. He is sufficient. If we believe the Lord is reliable and we serve the Lord in action, that's how you know contentment. Being sovereign means that God knows everything about the situation that you find yourself in right now. And he wants to share, he really, really wants to share his knowledge because he knows everything about everything with you. He wants your trust and your service and he'll work out the rest. He knows what's coming, if anyone does. God's promises to supply all he knows that we need according to his great wealth, which is always beyond our comprehension. If our focus is on the Savior and on doing what he has set before us to do, then we can be content with what he provides, including the strength to endure present difficulties. He knows what we need. He knows the situation that you find yourself in now. He also knows what's just beyond that. We don't know what that time frame is. We want it done immediately. But that might not work for God. Paul knew that God would supply all the Philippians' basic needs because Jesus said this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. Live right. Look, if you don't live right, this verse falls apart. But if you do, it says, and he will give you everything that you need. Everything you need is further clarified in Matthew 6.25. It refers to what you will eat, drink, and wear. I love word banks. (laughs) There it is right there. There's the answer key. Jesus was teaching that if we put our focus on serving him 
and growing in the conviction that his way is the way, whether we think it is or not, God will take care of our basic material needs. Not our greeds, just our needs. In context, he is talking through how to be free from anxiety. You know, people who struggle with that. It's a, it's a, it's a mental concern that you just can't shake. But God's saying here, no, no, things that you absolutely need will be taken care of. And how to be content in your soul in living that out. Then, writing to Timothy, Paul taught the same exact thing. So, writing to Philippians, now writing to another group in the church. Yet, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we're not going to take anything with us when we leave it. Yes, that's in the Bible. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. This was a common theme. So as we conclude today, I think this is my favorite part. The Lord that I hope you trust is no one's debtor. He doesn't owe anyone a trillion dollars. He doesn't owe anyone any favors. He doesn't owe anyone his life. He doesn't have to pay in any portion of anything of his resources back to someone else. He owns it all. That's the God we serve. And if you don't, I hope you do. Because I'd rather be on his side, because the other side's not looking any better (laughs) than that. Genuine contentment brings confidence that God will bless our trusting and serving. The more you practice what is completely uncomfortable, look, I get it. That's where our confidence is strengthened and strengthened. It's that endurance training that the the gym trainers will tell you that you're supposed to do. Ah, forget that. Well, don't forget that. But here, this this is our endurance training in spiritual things. We walk through things. We don't like it. We're anxious. But then we finish it. We complete it. We look back and we thank God for, well, what did he do? What was that last thing right before we were going to quit? We didn't quit because God walked us through that next door that came through. I don't know about you, but that's enough for me. I'm good with that. So let's use the words of Paul as our own benediction here. We'll end here today. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.